This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. David A. Hollinger is the Preston Hotchkiss Professor of History at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has been a Guggenheim Fellow, a fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, a member of the Institute for Advanced Study, and Harnsworth Professor at the University of Oxford. He's a past president of the Organization of American Historians, and his latest work is After Cloven Tongues of Fire, Protestant Liberalism in Modern American History. Professor Hollinger, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. I have to tell you, the first of your books that came to my attention was, it seems, almost 20 years ago, and that was the book Science, Jews, and Secular Culture, Studies in Mid-20th Century American Intellectual History. And since that time, I have to tell you, I've, I've, I've been a, a bibliographic voyeur of your writings. I have uh, well, I've gone, after, so much. gone after just about everything you've written, Good. Uh, even tracked down some of, uh, of your less uh, known works. And I just want to tell you, I find... Your approach to intellectual history, uh, just absolutely fascinating, and I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Good. And it has to do with the fact that not only uh, is your field of study of tremendous interest, but the particular topic of your latest book, the focus, again, the title of Professor Hollinger's book is After Cloven Tongues of Fire, the subtitle Protestant Liberalism and Modern American History. Professor, you make the point, and indeed assert, that Protestant liberalism is missing from the narrative that uh, many intellectuals, secular and otherwise, have about America in the 20th century. Yeah, and this has been very frustrating to me because, uh, you know, one of the reasons I did this book is because I thought there was actually quite a lot of evidence that um, liberal Protestants were a big deal. And I think one of the difficulties is that um, a lot of, uh, of historians just sort of haven't taken religion seriously unless they think of it as sort of wacky. And, you know, it's very common for secular historians to think of uh, fundamentalists as wacky, but somehow liberals, well, they can't really be relevant, are they? They're not relevant to the study of religion. And I think that's a terrible mistake, because if you really want to study all aspects of modern American history, these liberal Protestants are, are such a big deal. I mean, if you look at the United States about 1960, Almost everybody, there are exceptions, okay, they're Jewish people on the Supreme Court, they're various prominent Catholics. Okay, but by and large, in 1960, if you were in charge of something big, if you had an opportunity to actually influence the direction of the society, the chances are that you grew up in a white Protestant milieu and that you were probably affiliated, even if nominally, with one of the big mainstream, or as we say, mainline denominations, the Methodists, the Northern Baptists, the Presbyterians, and so forth. And without getting into overdetermination, without saying, oh yeah, liberal Protestantism explains everything, I wanted to come into this and say, look, this is something we ought to be taking into account. We've got labor unions, we've got civil rights organizations, we've got congressional activity, we've got courts. We've also got liberal Protestants. Let's talk about them. Well, let's talk about them. And by the way, I like the way you make that argument in your book. You say back in, in at least the period through the 1960s, if you ran anything big, you probably were a mainline Protestant. Yeah. So this is a factor about American history that we ought to confront, whether you like it or not. A lot of people don't like it. They sort of wish that American history were less Protestant than it is. Um, and, you know, I just say, let's take history as it comes. 
Well, I like the way you take on this issue because uh, you're not doing what I would classify as revisionist uh, history here, but you are going back and very clearly documenting a story that just wasn't told and, as you said, wasn't uh, thought to be interesting by many people. And and yet you make an argument that goes beyond just the fact that Protestant liberals were formative and influential and even essential to the narrative. You go further to suggest that they actually, over against the prevailing assumptions of, uh, well, everyone from evangelicals to seculars, the assumption is that they lost. You're arguing, actually, that they won. Yeah, I think the the way to assess um, the history of religion of all kinds is to talk about uh, what its consequences are wherever you find them. And uh, what you have with liberal Protestantism is that you know, beginning in the 60s, its membership goes down. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the people whom we might call post-Protestants continue to be affected by that Protestant tradition. So, I think it's important to look outside the churches and look at a lot of people who were formed by ecumenical Protestantism and what their role is in the society. And I, in making that argument, I picked up on a point made oh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, by N.J. Demereth, a sociologist at, uh, what does he teach, Brandeis, I think, or UMass. And he said in this article that that liberal Protestants had achieved a cultural victory while uh, organizational defeat. And I picked that up and ran with it a little bit, the idea being that some of these ideas like tolerance and pluralism and free inquiry and being respectful of various various aspects of modernity, these were things that became very popular uh, in American life, as with the liberalization in many segments, and it was the liberal Protestants who were pushing this. Of course, it was contested. You know, there were, uh, you know, people like uh, Richard Niebuhr used to quarrel with his more famous brother, Reinhold, that, uh, that liberal Protestantism under the leadership of people like Reinhold Niebuhr was too worldly, was being organized too much about its ability to advance liberal agendas that were generated outside the faith. That was a very common complaint by more orthodox thinkers. But whatever we think of that argument, and whatever we think about orthodoxy, and however we stand on the really fascinating arguments between these two great thinkers, the fact is, I think, that liberal Protestantism did enable, advance, and promote a number of classically liberal ideas in the culture as a whole, and that's just something that historians need to confront. You know, Demerath does argue about uh, a cultural victory, even though mainline Protestants suffered, and I think he's right, an organizational defeat. And and you say one of the problems is, from your perspective as an historian, is that even mainline Protestants themselves uh, thought of their relative success in terms of their church membership rather than their cultural influence. Exactly. And although, you know, I uh, am not carrying a brief for liberal Protestants, the ones that do engage me on this and talk about my work, I I try to convince them that there's nothing wrong with uh, being a prophetic minority. I mean, anybody that knows anything about the history of Christianity can cite all sorts of examples where people uh, did great things without having a large popular constituency. And I think Martin Marty was right in the, the direction that he began to take the liberal Protestant establishment, even as early as the early 1960s in his writings in the Christian century, when he was saying, look, guys, uh, we're no longer the whole show. 
the old Protestant establishment is now just one of many voices, and it's no longer like a Christian country in the way that people like Henry Pitt Van Dusen used to say in the 40s. And so we should uh, content ourselves to be a prophetic minority. And you have some liberal Protestants who would continue to argue that. But when I follow the twaddle about the decline of liberal Protestantism, a lot of these people are really upset that they don't have the numbers that they used to. And again, that's for them to figure out. But uh, I try to give them a little bit of encouragement and say, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a prophetic minority. Well, I want to talk about the numbers in just a minute, because that is part of the story. But, you know, you make the argument, and uh, and, and quite frankly, in a, in a way I haven't seen anyone else make it, and that is that if you went back to the 1960s, for instance, and you spoke of the America that mainline, or, or you call them ecumenical Protestants, on the one hand had, and, uh, and then what uh, evangelical Protestants had uh, on the other hand, the world looks a lot more like that the liberal Protestants wanted than the one that the evangelicals hoped for. I think that's such an important point, and I'm glad that you picked up on that. Uh, if somebody else has said it, I haven't quite, the Demarath is probably the closest to saying that. And the reason I think that people don't notice it more is because the symbolic capital of Christianity is now chiefly in the possession of evangelical Protestants. And, uh, and there's a lot of attention to this. I mean, it's politically prominent. You've got all these um, Republican congressmen and so forth, and Michelle Bachman and Sarah Palin and all that stuff. And so people pay attention to that, and they think that, that uh, that's where the action is. Well, a large part of the action is there, but once you get outside the Republican Party, once you get outside some of the uh, uh, major evangelical uh, uh, Protestant circles, and you look at the country as a whole, well, a lot of the, I mean, if you, if you, if you, compared, uh, you compared what Christianity Today was saying in 1960, and what the Christian century was saying in 1960, the Christian century is actually more in keeping with popular views today than Christianity today. Now, that's talking about the whole nation. So much depends on whether or not your frame of reference is Protestantism or Christianity on one hand, and the United States on the other. And a difficulty with um, many of the students of American religious history, and I suppose sociology and so forth, is that when they talk about uh, the history of these things, they only talk about what stays within the community of faith. Whereas once you get outside the body of Christ, uh, so to speak, well, then you have all this influence of liberal Protestants in the society as a whole. So, yeah, I think this thing about, uh, you know, if you go back and read the kind of stuff that uh, Carl Henry was writing in 1960, and then you look at the kind of stuff that Harold Fay and uh, Martin Marty and these guys were writing, that, you know, in both cases, we nowadays would find fault with it, no matter what our political or religious orientation would be. We might be a little bit embarrassed by it in one way or another, but there's no question who won the argument nationally. So that's why it's really important to say who controls the spiritual capital, the, the, of, of, the, the symbolic capital of Christianity. Answer, the evangelicals, by and large. Who controls the politics and culture of the United States? The liberals, by and large. I hope that makes sense to you. Oh, it makes so much sense. That's what I wanted to, to really talk about here and focus on. And uh, as an evangelical, I have to say that I, I think you hit that squarely uh, at a point of of not only accuracy, but of, uh, of profound importance. Uh, and Carl Henry was a personal mentor to me. And uh-huh. uh, I, I would say that the world as it is now, you're right, is, is far more in line with, uh, with what Martin Marty, another good friend, would, uh, would yeah. want uh, rather than Carl Henry. 
and uh, and Martin Marty's been able to see it uh, through all these decades come to pass. In your article that is a chapter in the book entitled The Accommodation of Protestant Christianity with the Enlightenment, an old drama still being enacted. I read it first when it was published in Daedalus. Mm-hmm. You, you use two different moves. You identify two different uh, aspects of the accommodationism that mainline Protestantism effected. And, and I'd like for you to mm-hmm. talk about those two things. And, and the first of them had to do with cognitive, uh, a cognitive move, and uh, that is the very essence, I would argue, as a theologian, of theological liberalism. Yeah, there I talk about uh, what I call cognitive demystification and democratic diversification. And these seem to me to be two really huge processes in American history when we talk about religion and what happens to it. Now, the story of cognitive demystification, even though that's not maybe a term that turns up very often, the concept is actually an old one, because, you know, when we talk about, oh, like the Darwinian revolution in natural history, and when we talk about the, um, the uh, development of, uh, of, of biblical historical criticism, you know, Charles Augustus Briggs and all those people, uh, you know, there we, we talk about um, a series of ideas uh, that were uh, embedded in a religious tradition, that then become, as we say, demystified, meaning that the people in the Darwinian science thing and the people in the higher criticism were saying, hey, wait a minute, Uh, we've been the victim of a series of mystical ideas, that they're not really accurate, and that we need to have an accurate understanding of what's really going on. So it's an enterprise of demystification, and that's, you know, the sort of the standard story of secularization, as told by all the great sociologists, you know, Weber and Durkheim and all these people. Uh, and so you have, you have this process, and it goes on in one episode after another. It's often contested. You know, people quarrel, oh, that's not real science. I mean, Charles Hodge used to say, oh, that's science falsely so-called. So it's their quarrels. I'm not saying it's not contested. But the overall thing, so that by the time you get down in the 20th century, with massive numbers of educated people uh, really saying that science is what tells us the way the world is about, and the Bible is a great set of stories that we can take or leave, but it's not really something that tells us about the way the world is. So cognitive demystification is something that the liberals uh, uh, develop, so that you have all these liberal versions of theology, all these liberal versions of what Christianity is, and William James is one of my great examples of that, and there are a lot of others. I mean, I would say Rauschenbusch, Niebuhr, um, and a lot of the great accommodationists. William Ellery Channing was a, a, a great cognitive demystifier, going all the way down, you know, through Harvey Cox and some of the uh, Death of God theologians. So you've got all that going on in and out of religious communities. Then at the same time, you have demographic diversification. Now, that's something that's not been discussed as much, and I think it's really important because what happens is that a lot of Americans with their particular faith community find themselves in this radically pluralistic immigration-intensive society surrounded by a lot of other folks who have different tribal uh, traditions, different ideas as to what's really true different notions as to even what Christianity is. And so that's why, of course, the United States is a great place for denominationalism. You don't have denominationalism on nearly the scale developed in a lot of other societies, but you do in the United States. You have this plural kind of stuff, and you have people 
that are sort of living next door that are really different from you. Now, if you come, uh, if you're acculturated into a view that you know what's really right and you know what's true, and then you encounter a lot of people that seem, you know, reasonably wholesome once you overcome the standard tribal antagonism toward them, and they seem, you know, sort of okay, but they have very different views, that begins to diminish the confidence in orthodoxy. Now, the great example of that in terms of the most educated segment of the population is the coming of Jewish intellectuals in the United States in the middle decades of the 20th century. And what the Jewish intellectuals do to academia is really profound, so that you go from a 1920s in which even secular universities had a de facto Protestant culture and a sort of default understanding that Protestantism was like the common frame for everybody, to the end of the 1960s, where the universities become uh, the most conspicuous institutional space in the whole United States, where Christianity is not taken for granted as a sort of default frame for cultural development. So these people are not Christians, and one after another of the interactions that's reported at Yale or Berkeley or Chicago or Swarthmore or whatever, you have these people that are really different, and they don't seem so bad. I mean, they seem okay. Now, this is paralleled by a really interesting development that I'm now writing a book on, which is what happens with the Protestant Missionary Project. Now, this is also an enterprise in, democratic, uh, in demographic diversification, because you get all these Methodists and Presbyterians. They go to China. They go to India. They're going to convert to heathens. They know how bad those creeps are over there. They come back, and they say, hey, wait a minute. These people aren't so bad. So E. Stanley Jones in 1925 writes The Christ of the Indian Road, a book that sold more copies than Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt. And he says, look, all you Christians in Dubuque and Harrisburg, you should stop trying to impose your parochial views on the Hindus because all these people like Gandhi are actually more Christ-like than you are. Now, this is a very tough speech coming out of a lot of the missionaries. So the missionaries come back and they undercut the uh, provincial faith of a lot of the American radical liberalizers. What I'm just the, the point that I want to make is that the Jewish immigration and the foreign missionary project are both episodes in demographic diversification that yield liberalization. So if you look at the history of the Presbyterians or the Congregationalists, who are the big liberals in the 1940s and 50s? The missionaries. This conversation with Professor David Hollinger is really important because even though we're talking about Protestant liberals, these same issues, especially the twin issues of cognitive demystification and demographic diversification, these are things that have a direct impact on evangelical Christianity as well. We're watching, in a sense, how mainline Protestants, liberal Protestants, responded to the challenges of modernity by these two moves. And it's often easy for us to imagine that evangelicals are innocent of these two moves ourselves. But we need to watch, we need to look a little more carefully to see just what mainline Protestants were doing with these two big intellectual moves. Professor Hollinger, when you talk about cognitive demystification, you're talking about what the prophets, the early prophets of secularization called the loss of enchantment or disenchantment. And what more modern sociologists like James Davison Hunter have called cognitive bargaining. In other words, in in the conflict, you might even say the collision between 
theistic truth claims, indeed uh, revelational claims based in the Scriptures uh, as Christians, with the claims of modernity, this creates an intellectual crisis. You're suggesting, as I follow your argument, that the liberal Protestants actually rather successfully, in terms of a cultural strategy, accommodated by this uh, mechanism of cognitive demystification. And and it put them in a better position, uh, at least culturally speaking, uh, to affect uh, change in the culture. That's right. We need to understand that religion in America, Protestantism in America, consists to a very large extent of this accommodation with the Enlightenment, and that's really quite different than what happens in France or Germany or many of the European countries, because the United States is such a Protestant, religious-intensive country to begin with, so a lot of the intellectuals that are embedded in that, even the scientists, are very eager for the uh, for harmony of science and religion. So they come up with a series of strategies for doing this. And um, the you know, one of the reasons that the Darwinian controversy was such a big deal in the United States is that so many of the religious thinkers were eager to come up with ways that they could accommodate evolution and still be Christians. And again, the more orthodox types, like, you know, like the Princeton theologic, theology people and so forth, they didn't want any part of it. And then after 1911, the fundamentalists didn't want any part of it. But the massive majority of American church-going Protestants, especially the intellectuals that were you know, part of Andover Seminary and so forth, or the preachers, they went very far in the direction. Henry Ward Beecher is an example of that. I mean, yes. you know, very uh, you know, thick with a lot of the British uh, evolutionists. So... I think that the the history of liberal Protestantism in the United States consists very largely of a determination on the part of a lot of Protestant leading intellectuals to bring the Enlightenment into Protestantism, rather than treat uh, the Enlightenment as an enemy of Protestantism. And about a decade ago, in a journal article, you made the point that in the higher educational environment, Science is recognized to have cognitive superiority. So this cognitive demystification, especially in the context of the university culture, uh, where mainline Protestants uh, definitely saw the elites being educated, the culture being formed, uh, they basically had to bend uh, to this cognitive superiority of science. So the accommodation, I'm going to argue, was uh, was pretty much one way. It, it wasn't a, a truce between science and theism. The Protestant liberals basically just had to accept the overwhelming a uh, sense of the cognitive superiority of science and just deal with it? Well, I'd say that uh, it's a two-way street uh, if you count um, the doctrines of the liberal Protestants as in some way authentically Christian, uh, because the, uh, you know, they, they, they have different ideas. I mean, if you look at somebody like Newman Smythe or, uh, or, 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 uh, or George Harris around the turn of the century, or if you look later at somebody like... Um, at Chicago. If you look at a lot of the people that Gary Dorian talks about in his magnificent uh, history yes. of American theology, you know, these guys are affirming Christianity by their own lights. And so what they're saying is that, that as a result of the progress of science, we are able to articulate a more authentic and workable Christianity because we have at our disposal a lot of stuff that the Nicene Fathers didn't have. We have at our disposal a lot of things that Jesus didn't have. We have a lot of stuff at our disposal that 
you know, the reformers didn't have. I mean, Martin Luther was a good guy, but, you know, we got science. He didn't. So there's a matter of, of, of taking all of these resources. And I think a lot of these liberals would view the entire history of Christian thought as a series of accommodations with what contemporary circumstances were, and that they were opposed to these, uh, oh, what you might call ersatz uh, orthodoxies, like somehow people in the 17th century got everything right. So the Hasidic Jews have got Judaism right. The Amish have got Protestantism right. So what the liberals are saying is, wait a minute, all of those are historically contingent moments in the development of the faith. So we now, in 1896 and 1926 and 1946, we're going to do the best we can on that. Now that, that's what yes. liberalism is. So when Gary Dorian and the other students of liberalism To, to make the point you make in your book, I mean, you actually take it uh, all the way when you use an example such as uh, John uh, A.T. Robinson, uh, bishop yeah. there in, in Great Britain. You make the point that, that this cognitive demystification went all the way to practical atheism, Absolutely. Uh, in which there was, n- there was no theism whatsoever. And you also make, and I think almost uh, poetically, uh, you make the point that for many people, especially in the intellectual elites, liberal, and, and you choose to call it to ecumenical Protestantism, and I understand why, but liberal Protestantism basically became, and I, I think this is your phrase, a halfway house to a post-Protestant right. secularism. It was a way right. out. Definitely. And I think that that point has to be made firmly and unapologetically, while at the same time insisting that uh, this is not necessarily a teleological thing where everybody follows the halfway house. Halfway houses are sometimes places that people stay forever. So I don't want to be in the position of saying that uh, all of Protestantism is somehow doomed to uh, some secular future, although, you know, there are sociologists now who would say that, Steve Bruce, uh, David Voaz, I mean, there are a lot of people uh, to some extent. I don't think Mark Chavez would go that far. But a lot of the, uh, of the sociologists are seeing more and more indications of the demise of Christianity, and they're more inclined than we historians you know, to do, you know, Weltgeschichte type of stuff. They have been for a long time. That's not new. No, they have. And, uh, but I'm saying that right now, I mean, I, I think for a long time, you know, after Peter Berger and, uh, and David Martin and some of these other guys pulled back on that, there was, there was all this talk about post-secular and how secularization had been a mistake. But, you know, the last five years, the kind of stuff that's coming out now, uh, you have a resurgence of secularization theory. And, uh, you know, my point now is not to make a judgment about that. What I'm saying is that from the point of view of the history that I write, I always want to recognize that we don't know what the future is going to be. And uh, while a lot of people went into uh, through liberal Protestantism as a halfway house to secularism, that doesn't mean that everybody is going to do that. I mean, a favorite example of mine, actually, to switch to the liberal Catholics, is uh, Jim Carroll, whom you probably know. Yes. And this fantastic book of his, uh, you know, Practicing Catholic, he published four or five years ago, um, you know, there he uh, is a savage critic of uh, pre-Vatican II Catholicism, and he's defending his own Catholic 
Catholic stuff, and he says the only way I could become a true Catholic was to leave the priesthood and so on. But, I mean, there you have a vindication of Catholic liberalism. Now, I would never want to be party to anybody who said, oh, Jim Carroll isn't a real Catholic. You know, it's not my judgment to say that he's not a real Catholic. What I can say is that ideas very much like Jim's are those that some people go through on their way to something else. And I just think that's a historic reality. We historians are probably a little too stiff about resisting prediction. So, so I'm acknowledging that. Sure. And some of my language probably uh, betrays a little bit more of the sociology than it should. I think the halfway house metaphor, though, is very helpful. It uh, it, it explains a reality that, uh, historian or not, uh, one who looks at mainline Protestantism can see. You, you know, also, when you talk about uh, these two moves of accommodation uh, that were characteristic of, of the Protestant liberals, cognitive demystification and demographic diversification, you know, uh, Peter Berger, and you mentioned this uh, kind of shift in the last few years in secularization theory, Peter Berger has come back to say that he thinks now the major impact of secularization in uh, in the United States is what he calls pluralization, very much uh, like your second move here. Uh-huh. Uh, the fact I'll have that, to go back and look him up then. That's good. I haven't followed him recently. Well, he talks about how the, the, the existence of plural worldviews has actually been far more secularizing than uh, the, the hard uh, truth claims of modernity. In other words, the, the anti mm-hmm. uh, evangelicals, I'll just say, I think have had a, a stronger set of defenses against the anti-supernaturalism uh, mm-hmm. of the elites than against the pluralization, or as you would say, again, the, the demographic diversification of all of a sudden yeah. have, having a, you know a, a, an 18-year-old goes to college and uh, moves into the dorm, and there are people with alternative worldviews all around him. He's never seen that before. That's, that turns out, I think, to be a more potent yep. engine for accommodation on the evangelical side uh, than uh, the anti-supernaturalism. Yes. That makes perfect sense to me. I, I, um, I'm glad to learn that there's more and more evidence of that. It's you know, consistent with what I've been arguing, going to the good. Well, when you talk about mainline Protestants, just to continue the story, you do get sure. to the numbers. And, and uh, even uh, as Dimmereth did uh, 20 years ago almost, you, you point out the fact that numerically mainline Protestantism or liberal Protestants have basically disappeared into the, uh, the, the mainstream culture. But you point out that this wasn't all uh, due to it, the uh, the intellectual moves, you point out that there was a fall-off on the birth rate that, that came right. even prior to this. This is a huge thing, and uh, my colleague Mike Hout, the sociologist, has been uh, very important in making this clear, because what happens um, is that uh, the, the ecumenical Protestant milieu was much more friendly to the idea that... Um, you know, women should be doing a lot of stuff other than, uh, you know, following, what is it, Ephesians 5.24, um, and that it was fine for uh, for them to be out in the world and in the workforce, and uh, sex for uh, reasons other than procreation was uh, just fine. And so you have the liberals then moving in a direction, accepting uh, uh, contraception at a much earlier time. So uh, in the whole baby boom years, Presbyterian women only averaged 1.6 births whereas uh, evangelical Protestants average 2.4, which is many more even than the Catholics. And, you know, we always have this twaddle about Catholics and, you know, not having, uh, you know, birth control. But, uh, you know, the, the evangelical Protestants then produce all these young people. So I think that birth rates are very important, and then that, that sort of feeds upon itself because the liberal Protestants then find themselves with fewer and fewer women of childbearing age. 
So they don't bear as many children because there aren't as many of them to bear children. And then in the meantime, um, the, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the young people have decided that uh, they've had enough of this and that uh, secular views, as they imbibe them from Harvey Cox and all these people, mean that, uh, well, sticking with the old faith isn't that important. We can, we can liberate the captives, as uh, Harvey Cox put it, um, by going into SNCC or something else. And, you know, I tell a story in the book about, about motive and about the, um, the gay and lesbian uh, Methodists, uh, you know, moving out of the Methodist church because they found it so oppressive. So I think that there are a lot of things that are related to birth rates, and they're, they're, they're cultural. I mean, that it's not that birth rates occur in a vacuum, that the birth rate differential had to do with intellectual and cultural distinctions between the ecumenical liberal Protestants on one hand and the evangelical Protestants on the other. It's a crucial part of the story, and, and Mike Howard is chiefly responsible for it. And I'm sure there are uh, deep theological issues involved there as well. And, and one of the interesting sidelines to that would be the immediate response to the contraceptive question uh, mm-hmm. in terms of mainline Protestants. Uh, and and the literature of that is is really thick because you've got uh, these mainline Protestants celebrating the contraceptive revolution and uh, with rather triumphalistic language suggesting that uh, that this is really going to be a disaster for Catholicism. Yep. And uh, oh well, the, yeah. of course these mainline Protestants were vehemently anti-Catholic. I mean that's a very important part of this story. Well, you make you make the point that they were far more anti-Catholic than anti-Semitic. Oh, absolutely. No, the. Uh, well, you know, uh, 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 Catholics are not mentioned in the Bible. Jews are. Well, that, that doesn't sort of tell the whole story, but, uh, but it, you know, Catholics were a great threat. I mean, all these people in the Federal Council of Churches in the, uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, on people like G. Bromley Oxnum, uh, they were very deeply anti-Catholic. And, uh, you know, a lot of the support to Paul Blanchard. Uh, Blanchard is a very interesting character in the history of American religion, uh, insufficiently analyzed and, I think, underappreciated. But that was part of this whole anti-Catholic thing that went on at the time. And then if you look at what the Catholics were doing, I mean, they were, like, opposing the dissemination of birth control information in the state of Connecticut and things like that. So it wasn't as though there was nothing to discuss. So when I say they're anti-Catholic, I don't just mean that they're biased, although manifestly they were. Uh, but they were also dealing with some actual concrete issues that you could be concerned about, even if you were not biased. And also got to the issue of intellectual authority, because uh, you make the point in your earlier work that as the Jews came into the university culture, the mainline Protestants discovered that they were Jews by identity, uh, even many cases by, uh, by practice, but there was no intellectual authority that was in any way a rival to the, uh, to the educational establishment, whereas on the other hand, the Catholic Church is by its definition— uh, constituted around a teaching magisterium, and uh, was not so easily accommodated in the university culture. Absolutely. That's very crucial. And one of the reasons, again, that the Jews are so important in this context is because they all espouse epistemic universalism. Uh, and then when you get uh, feminism and black power and so forth, you have, although eventually those ideas are discredited very widely, but you have a kind of... Uh, gender and uh, ethno-racial essentialism, according to which, you know, there's a black perspective on things. Or, you know, Carol Gilligan used to say there's a female voice and all this kind of stuff. Well, nobody said in 1958 that there was a Jewish voice, at least nobody who made it in American academia. So that's, again, why the Jews are, are very special, because they, 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 uh, they care. 
carry out demographic diversification, and in the process, they espouse the epistemic universalism of the Enlightenment. So there, many of them are secular to begin with. So it's the combination of the secularity of the, of the Jewish intelligentsia coming in from Europe and the fact that they're so different. That's what really makes them crucial players in this whole process. Now, they were actually not as upset about the Catholics <laughs> as, the, um, as the Protestants. I mean, they saw the Catholics as a minority, and they sort of were annoyed by them, and they thought that they were, you know, in the thrall of uh, medieval superstition and all that. But they really weren't worked up about it. Whereas the, the liberal Protestant establishment was very afraid that the Catholics would take over the country, and that's one of the reasons that they go that they developed the, um, the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches because they feel that ecumenical unity is the only way to stop the Catholic juggernaut. So let me ask you to look at the present. I know you're an historian, and that's where you've been doing so much work, but you are telling the story pretty much up to the present here. And and looking at the present, maybe even speculating about the future, what do you see as the future prospects for mainline liberal Protestantism? Where does it go from here? You know, I wish I had a better answer to that than I do. Um, because uh, one possible path for them is uh, more of the same. And I'm not sure that would be a bad thing. Um Another possible path for them would be more energetic engagement against evangelicals. And I've been at a number of forums where this is debated, and uh, somebody will stand up and say, Harry Emerson Fosdick was not afraid to attack the fundamentalists. We are. Shouldn't we do more about this? And then there would be arguments back and forth as to whether that wouldn't be destructive in the long run. And then you get into this fascinating discussion as to whether, from a liberal Protestant point of view, the salient solidarity is the community of faith, or is the salient solidarity uh, a liberal view generally. Now, if the salient solidarity is the liberal view generally, then liberal Protestants, liberal Catholics, and secularists, secular liberals, can all be part of the same thing, and the enemy is... uh, if I may, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But then there's another way of looking at it, and that is that uh, the community of faith is the salient solidarity, and the evangelicals and the ecumenicals should not be so quarrelsome with one another, and we need to find an alliance whereby to uh, deal with the real enemy, which is secularism. So I hear these arguments carried out. I don't have a strong feeling about it. Um, The one prediction that I would venture is this. I think that uh, evangelical Protestantism of the kind that is voiced in politics by Governor Perry of Texas, by Sarah Palin, by Michelle Bachman, by Senator Colbert of Oklahoma, and so forth, I think that particular style of evangelical Protestantism is going to continue to be a very prominent feature of American life for a long time. I don't agree with the people who say that it's about to go away. Now, the reason I think that is because of the Electoral College and because of the uh, way that the Congress is organized and because of the redistricting. What this means is that one of the major political parties, the Republican Party, given its constituency, it has a great opportunity to continue to advance this particular style of religion. And so people who are invested in that are very likely to indeed to take advantage of the opportunities that are presented to them by the Republican Party. And so I think that just
if, if, if we didn't have the Electoral College and if the uh, congressional districts were organized differently, then uh, the big blue states, uh, California, coastal California, New York, Boston, uh, Chicago, and so forth, would have a much greater role in American public affairs than we do. If that were the case, then evangelical Protestantism with its political alliance with the Republican Party would be more likely to diminish. But given the political context, I think evangelical Protestantism is here to stay, and I keep telling my friends, get used to it. Indeed, in your book, you summarize the research of Robert Putnam and David Campbell when you write, there are fewer and fewer political liberals in any church and fewer and fewer political conservatives outside the churches. So there's a very clear distinction. Yeah, that's a remarkable fact, I think, about American politics today. Well, Professor Hollinger, thank you for a most interesting conversation and for a most important new book. I'll look forward to your new book on the impact of Protestant missions on this liberalizing tendency. Well, I think you can see why I was looking forward to that conversation with Professor David Hollinger. The chapters of his new book, After Cloven Tongues of Fire, Protestant Liberalism in Modern American History, have been coming out in academic journals, and they have definitely been a very interesting introduction to where he was going as this book now finds its final form. He's looking at American Protestant liberalism, and by the way, he refers to liberal Protestants as ecumenical Protestants, as over against evangelical Protestants, because he thinks the word liberal can easily be confused with political liberalism, and because the main line, as he says, is just an anachronism. So ecumenical Protestants on the one hand and evangelical Protestants on the other have both suffered a, a relative disinterest from many historians. But it's David Hollinger who now comes back to say the neglect of an interest in Protestant liberals in these ecumenical Protestants means that you really can't tell the story of the 20th century. As an historian, that's the story he wants to tell. His field is intellectual history, and he is a master in that field, indeed a very dominant figure. And when you look at this newest book, you note that what Professor Hollinger is doing is filling in the gaps in a story that tells us how we arrived in the 21st century in terms of the major intellectual moves of the last century. And many of the people making those moves were, as he said, mainline Protestants. Indeed, I really like the way he has of expressing the dominance of these mainline liberal Protestants in their era. As he says, even into the 1960s, if you were running almost anything big in America, you were probably a mainline Protestant. You thought of yourself as an Episcopalian or a a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a Congregationalist, a a members of the Disciples of Christ Church, or a Northern Baptist. You saw yourself, and by the way, the overwhelming majority of those were Episcopalians, the higher you got in the establishment, or if not Episcopalians, then Presbyterians. Then you saw yourself as very much a part of the mainstream, and as Hollinger makes very clear, you wanted to stay in that mainstream. As the mainstream secularized, as the full impact of modernity, as the intellectual challenges of the Enlightenment came upon them, especially with full force in the 20th century, mainline Protestants responded by accommodating. That accommodationism came in the two forms that Professor Hollinger so well describes. Cognitive demystification, that's the theological or ideological move, whereby theistic truth claims are cut down to size so that they fit within a secular worldview. And as Professor Hollinger makes clear, perhaps more clear in his writings even than in this conversation, when you had the theistic truth claims come over against the claims of science in the academy, science always won. Over 10 years ago, Professor Hollinger wrote about the necessity of people who are looking at intellectual history to recognize the cognitive superiority of science in the academy to such an extent 
that not only Christianity, but for that matter, even those in the liberal arts had to bend intellectually to the superiority of science and its truth claims if they wanted to be at the heart of the intellectual experiment there in the 20th century. Cognitive demystification is what we would otherwise call theological liberalism. It is the accommodationism whereby the anti-supernatural truth claims of the Enlightenment force an accommodation in theology and the surrender of significant doctrinal content. Now, Professor Hollinger is not himself a mainline Protestant, writing as a secular historian. He makes that very clear. And he basically thinks that that move on the part of mainline Protestants was both cogent and wise. In other words, it kept them in the mainstream. And that second move, demographic diversification, the reason why the liberal Protestants were there before evangelicals is because the liberal Protestants were in the places where this kind of demographic diversification happened first. For instance, in the American University campus. And as this pluralization, as Peter Berger would call it, takes place, you have people beginning to, perhaps even less consciously than before, trim their intellectual sails, uh, begin to minimize some of their theistic truth claims, begin certainly to surrender any kind of claim of exclusivity, and especially the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where Professor Hollinger speaks of epistemic universalism as one of the entry prices, the ticket prices, into the cultural mainstream. What we're looking at here is also a very honest assessment of Protestant liberalism. Honest in the sense that I think Professor Hollinger is exactly right. If you had the editorial boards of the Christian Century and Christianity Today reconstituted from the 1960s, the world would be more like that that the editors of the Christian Century wanted and clearly articulated in terms of their hopes, far less than that of the editorial board of Christianity Today. Now, what's questionable is the extent to which mainline Protestants really had anything to do with that. They certainly did follow the accommodationist moves that Professor Hollinger demonstrates here and illustrates, but the extent to which that actually shaped the culture, that remains to be analyzed. And that's where many other historians coming along after Professor Hollinger and before him would say, you know, all this is true, but we're not certain how important it is. Professor Hollinger thinks it's important because it's an essential part of the American story. And he makes this clear by looking at figures such as John Foster Dulles, and others who were so central in terms of American life in the 20th century and could not have thought of themselves as anything other than Christians, and in particular as Protestants, and in his case, Presbyterian. There is so much in this conversation that should prompt our thinking. One of the things that certainly came to my mind is the way that Professor Hollinger contrasted the ecumenical Protestants with the evangelical Protestants in birth rate. But I wish our conversation had been able to continue to what comes after birth rate, and that's the retention of those who are born to the families of these two different groups. Because, as Professor Hollinger makes clear, the evangelicals were not only having more children, as he says, they had more children and they kept them. One of the stories that is essential to telling the tale of liberal Protestantism in the 20th century is, especially in the last five decades, the virtual inability of mainline Protestants to keep their own children. And Hollinger tells why. As he says, when these churches secularized, their children found a way to be secular without needing the church. And that should be a very cogent warning to evangelicals who are facing many of the same temptations even now. But that's the bigger part of the story, isn't it? Looking at the history of mainline Protestantism and at Protestant liberalism, we come to understand that cognitive demystification is a temptation that still is always around us. It is only getting more intense, as a matter of fact, in terms of the, the pressures of late modernity. The Enlightenment challenges are still everywhere around us, perhaps even more taken for granted in an increasingly secularized society. And yet evangelicals, most of whom at least have the concern about cognitive demystification, 
are often far less concerned about demographic diversification, or again, as Peter Berger says, pluralization. And so our young people arrive in the intellectual context of the college or university, and in so many cases, then, if not before, they run right into rival truth claims and worldviews, and they don't know what to do. And I think a clear case can be made that this demographic diversification has been far more an engine for theological accommodationism among evangelicals than has cognitive demystification. In other words, we're better at recognizing theological accommodationism when people say that's what they're doing, rather than when we see it as the result of where they're living. If you want to understand the mind of the age, or the mind of the ages behind us, you have to look at intellectual history as a very serious discipline. And no one has contributed more to that in America's public and educational life than David Hollinger. It was a privilege to have this conversation with him. And I hope these ideas have prompted thinking on your part as well, so that this will lead to a conversation far beyond thinking in public. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us here on the Southern Seminary campus on September the 26th for one extraordinary day to commemorate the life and legacy of Dr. Carl F.H. Henry. Hosted here and convened in partnership with the Beeson Divinity School, Fuller Theological Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Union University, this one-day event will feature addresses from some of evangelicalism's most prominent theologians and the heirs of Henry's legacy. 100 years after his birth, Carl Henry's vision for a confessional and global evangelicalism remains as timely as ever. For more information, go to sbts.edu forward slash events. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mowler.